0: This is uh, from a recorded talk. So it's normal that we wish to get the mind to a peaceful place very quickly. Uh, But it does take time. Developing this peace, it does take time. Uh, But we've seen the danger and the drawbacks in the mind, which is scattered. It's all over the place and chaotic. And so we try to train the mind uh, to develop peace. And so in truth, what really is this mind? We can ask our minds, are you me? Who are you? Are you a being? Are you an animal? Are you self? Are you other? And it doesn't give us any answer. And the mind is a knowing element, an element which receives the um, sense impressions from the six senses. And when this knowing element um, knows these things already, then it gets deluded by them, deluded by these sense impressions, deluded and lost in this world. When this is the case, then it proliferates. And then greed, hatred and uh, delusion, or oh, sorry, avicca, dana and upadana, this ignorance, uh, craving and clinging, um, they cover over the mind. And our mind doesn't meet with the goodness within it. So the things which obstruct and prevent that goodness from arising are these hindrances, the nivaranas. So all of the pleasure, the attraction that we find are towards the things that we experience in our daily lives. We see that there's a lot of liking that arises, a lot of traction are towards the pleasurable sense impressions. And there's aversion towards unpleasurable sense impressions. And there's delusion that arises towards everything that we experience. And so the mind, it gets pulled into these states, into liking, into disliking, getting lost and deluded in these sense impressions. And the nivāranas, these hindrances, appear These are the things which don't allow the mind to meet with goodness. So it's just like water in a well or in a pond uh, that's all stirred up and murky. Uh, The sediment has been stirred up, and so we can't see into the bottom of that well. And so it's the same with the mind. And when we train the mind to come into peace, to pass over these nivāranas, these hindrances, and to go beyond scatteredness, this um, agitation and annoyance in the heart, the hate, the liking, uh, the anger, the ill-will. When we can pass over these and get into a state of samādhi, then that samādhi allows the mind to gain clarity, to become clear just like the water in that well or that pond, that when the sediment falls, when the water becomes still, then we're able to see right to the bottom. So the kilesas, they've been deeply embedded within the hearts for a very long time now. But when the heart becomes clear, we're able to see these. The things which make the mind deluded which cause it to become lost in these sense impressions, namely ignorance, uh, craving and clinging. We'll be able to see these, see all the things that pull the mind into delusion. And when we see this, then wisdom arises, that shows that we have gained wisdom. We'll be able to defeat and overcome these kileses, overcome craving and clinging. So when we... When our minds have entered into the very heart of the teachings of uh, the buddha and then we'll see things in this way and we'll see what the buddha taught right from the first sermon that he gave uh, that all things which are of the nature to arise are of the nature to cease anything which arises that thing too ceases so having been born into this world we have these physical phenomena and mental phenomena. And the mind cognizes those, it receives those and experiences those, the physical and mental things. But all of these, both physical things and mental things, they all arise, having arisen, they stay for a while, and then they cease. The problem is that the mind attaches to these, attaches to physical things, mental things, as being me, as being mine, as being... A being, a self, or other. But all eighty-four thousand teachings that the Buddha gave, they all boil down to um, rupang anicca, that form is unstable, is inconstant. Uh, vedana anicca, that feeling is inconstant, unstable. And then that memory or perceptions, that mental formations and sense consciousness that these two are unstable, these two are constantly changing. But the mind that is lacking or doesn't have mindfulness and wisdom, it will attach to these or really fully cling to them as being me, as being mine. And thus we need to train our minds to have peace, to gain wisdom, so that we're able to extract the attachment Towards physical and mental phenomena out from our hearts. In the beginning, we need to work on the level of memory, that these memories come up. That this is me, this is mine, this is a self. Uh, but we need to bring up these memories to counteract that. We need to retrain our memory to see that it's not a self. We used to need. We need to use wisdom on the level of proliferation first, and the level of thought first. Asking ourselves, is this really me? And if it is me, then I don't want this thing to change. I don't want it to get old. I don't want it to die. And am I able to do that? Am I able to prevent these things from happening? And so we contemplate in this way. We ask ourselves, well, attachment and worry Do these things cause suffering? Are they painful? And we see that they are painful. So then we can ask ourselves, well, who's doing that? Who's attaching? Who's worrying? When these things come up, the mind is full of anguish. There's no peace there. There's no stillness because of that worry. So why does the mind give rise to these states? Why does this worrying uh, come up within the heart? We ask ourselves, greed, hatred, and delusion, do we want these things? And we don't, so why do they appear within the mind? It's because all dhammas, all phenomena, have cause which bring them into being. All happiness or sadness which we experience, these all arise due to causes, that they don't just appear out of thin air. They have causes and conditions which give rise to them, and when those causes and conditions cease, then that thing too ceases. And so we need to study this. What is it that gives rise to suffering? How does suffering appear? Uh, the mind which is painful, which has greed, hatred, and delusion within it, how does this arise? And so we study this. We get to know uh, what these states are like and what gives rise to them. We see that they come up due to delusion within the mind from this delusion, then there's craving and clinging which appears. And so there's this Vedana feeling that arises. There's pleasant feeling, unpleasant feeling, a neutral feeling. And this becomes the causes and conditions for other things to arise as well, for attachment to come up, this upadana uh, to appear. And when we have these sense organs, the inner ayatana, of the eyes, the ears, uh, the nose, the tongue, and the body, and then the mind itself. And there's also the external sense media, the external ayatana, of forms, of sounds, of odors, of taste, tactile sensations, and thoughts and emotions. And when these two things contact each other, then vijnana, sense consciousness, arises. This becomes the cause for Vedana, this feeling, to come up. These uh, sukha-vedana, dukkha-vedana and upekka, the feelings of um, happiness or pleasure, displeasure or pain, and uh, neutral feelings. And then craving arises. When there's this craving, then there will be clinging. And this happens really quickly. The Craving goes into clinging extremely fast. And then from that, there's becoming and birth that arises. And then suffering appears immediately. So therefore, at the point where these ayatana meet, the external and internal, the sense organs and the sense objects meet up, we need to be very cautious at that point to establish our mindfulness well. Because if we don't have mindfulness there, the kilesas arise. There's ignorance, there's craving, there's clinging that comes up, and these drag the mind down to a lower state. If we are cautious, however, then when any of these things arise, then we're able to deal with them. If anger comes up, for example, then we can uh, use sila, this virtue, and make sure that we're collected within the precepts. And it's not the case that for meditation practitioners that when we take up this practice that we'll be able to put an end to all anger immediately, that there won't be any anger arising at all. It's just that when anger comes up, then we know it. We'll experience anger just like we did before, but we know that we have mindfulness there. We know that now the mind is angry, now it's greedy, now it's deluded. Now it's full of worry. And we also know that we need to be cautious at this point. We need to take care of the mind. We follow up on the mind, look at it, observe it, know that it is this way, that it's proliferating like this. It's giving rise to this kind of narrative, telling these stories. And when it's greedy, then there's uh, this proliferation uh, upon that greed. When it's angry, when it's deluded, then it will tell stories and narratives based upon that anger and delusion. So we need to come and study the issues of the mind. We need to have endurance, patience. We need to be collected and have both our actions of body and speech restrained within sila, within virtue. And know that perhaps now there isn't really any samadhi any samādhi, how we normally conceive samādhi to be. But really inherent within sila, within virtue, is samādhi. That we need to have samādhi in order to be able to have sila. That if there's no samādhi at all, then our sila, our virtue, just can't stay. So that we're able to be virtuous shows that we do have samādhi that we have this firm intent of heart to collect our body and speech within sila. And this is also true for wisdom, um, that if we don't have wisdom, then we can't keep sila. But we have this wisdom, and we know that if we don't have this virtue, then this will bring up a lot of chaos. It'll make things really difficult. And so we know that we need to be cautious. We know that when greed, hatred and delusion arise, we need to be really careful. So there's wisdom within sila. So therefore, when we have sila, then we also have samadhi, and we also have wisdom. And Chah, he gave a comparison here to it being like a small mango, so it starts off as just being a very small fruit, but steadily it develops and it grows. And it's true with our practice as well, that our sila, virtue, it gains more and more energy. Our minds become more and more settled and firm, and wisdom grows and grows, and this happens in stages. So when our minds become settled and they enter into samadhi, It's like the mango who's grown fully and it's starting to become ripe. Our sila is well established. Our wisdom becomes better. And so we have this firmness in sila and virtue and in samadhi as well. And this develops until we're able to (coughs) gain control over the greed, hatred and delusion that's there. Until there's no proliferation that happens in the mind. And we'll gain understanding, our understanding gets better. And we develop this wisdom, this knowing in time, having wisdom being on top of things, knowing um, all physical and mental phenomena as they occur as we experience them. And we teach ourselves that their truth, that all physical and mental phenomena, these are all changing. They're all stressful, they're not self. They're not me, they're just conventions. Just like this body, it's full of elements, elements that we borrow from the world. It's like us, we're sitting here right now, and the fact that we're able to sit here, it's dependent upon oxygen, upon the air. And this air is what allows us to survive. If we're lacking it for just five minutes, then the body will die. And so we borrow these elements from the world. And with that being the case, why do we consider it to be me? We just borrow this fire, we borrow water, we borrow air, we borrow earth, and these come together and form this body. So why do I deludedly take the body to be me? So when the mind is well established in samadhi, then we use that energy, and that stability to contemplate into the body. Getting to know the body and teaching ourselves that uh, there isn't really a self to it. There's no genuine self here. The body isn't me. It's not other. There's no being. There's no animal. There's no self. There's no other there. These things just don't exist within it. It's just elements that we get, these elements um, that we borrow from the world and they're able to stay on temporarily. But in the end, they must fall apart, they must decay. And that's just their nature, it's normal for it to be that way. So we come to train our minds to be able to see more clearly into these truths, so that we can extract the attachment that we have. And when all people are born into the world, they're born with this delusion. They're born with this attachment. When they experience any sense impressions, then they react towards those with liking or disliking. The things that we like, then we want those. The things we dislike, we don't want them. And when things are this way, um, then we need to come to a point where we're able to see the danger of them. We're able to see the suffering and the pain in this world and see the suffering which arises within our hearts, and also see how this is a noble truth, the noble truth of dukkha. So this dukkha that appears within our hearts, it's a a disease, a discontentment. This dukkha arises because we become separated from the things that we like and we love, because we don't get what we want, or we have to meet with things that we don't like. And this all gives rise to dukkha. So when we experience that, we also get this feeling that we need to find a path out of that. We know that we don't like the suffering, we don't want it. So, how do we become freed from it? And that's what compels us to seek out the Dhamma. And so we come to kind of meet with this sasana meet with the religion, and get to know it, seek it out. And this is a religion of peace, what we call santi. And so we seek out peace, and we do that through training our minds, through meditating. It's like how all of you have come to this monastery to practice, to study, to chant, to sit and walk in meditation. And this is all for the sake of bringing the mind to peace. And we do this so that we can crack the code um, in the body and the code of all mental phenomena as well. And the mind is attached to these things. and It's attached because there's a code that's there. So we need to break that code. The code of avidja, of craving. Sorry, avidja, ignorance, and then craving and clinging. There's This code is there. Uh, because we view these things as being me and being mine. And so it doesn't really take a lot to be able to break it. All we need to do is just tell ourselves that these things, they're not me, they're not mine. We need to use our wisdom on the level of thought first. We ask ourselves, is this body me? And if it is, then why must it grow old? Why does it get painful? Why will it die? If it's lacking water, then it dies. If it's lacking heat, then it dies. If it's lacking air, then it dies. If it's lacking some earth, then it dies. So how could this thing possibly be me? We ask our minds this. And if they really are me, then I'll be able to control them. I'll be able to prevent the body from dying. In the beginning, we take the body and the mind to be one thing. They kind of co-mingle and we see them as being one thing. But when the mind gains stillness and peace, then it separates out from the body. And sometimes, perhaps, the mind will kind of leave the body, and will be there in the air, and we'll be able to see clearly that the mind and the body are two different things, and they'll separate out in this way. But it's the attachment, attachment towards physical and mental phenomena, that make them kind of come together and cling together. So we need to contemplate. And we need to see the danger um, in these things. And we need to train ourselves. We need to reflect. Reflect in order to see the nature of conventions. That physical phenomena are conventions. This body is a convention. These matters of us and them, these are just conventions. Monks and novices, these are conventions. Male and female, these are things that we suppose into being. And when we see the nature of conventions, then vimuti, liberation, appears. And this is really an amazing experience. And so we come to study and to practice in this way, until we gain clear knowledge over the body. And we're able to see the body arise and cease. And we can see how sankharas, these conditioned phenomena, are things that are scary that are frightful. When we see things in this way, then this is the uh, vipassana, jnana, uh, this knowledge that comes from insight that arises, and it gains clarity in stages. But for practitioners, we experience these things and we know them in this way, but you can often not know what's going on and that we, we can't really put a label to it but we still experience it directly. And having experienced it, then the mind becomes weary with all of these things. And the lust um, that we have towards them, the desire, the attraction, gets pulled out. And the mind becomes well-established and firm in its wisdom. And at this point we see clearly that ah the the teachings of the Buddha they really do bring us out of suffering, for sure. This is really how things are. That when we practice we really do get results. Even though the Buddha taught during his lifetime, a long time ago, but even now if we put these teachings into practice, we will see the results of them. And that it's not dependent upon time. And we see the Dhamma. And when we see the Dhamma, then we see the Buddha. In the beginning, um, we see the Buddha just as a symbol. That initially, after the Buddha passed away, um, there weren't any Buddha images, there weren't any symbols there, to kind of direct symbols to represent the Buddha. Uh, so what they took was the Dhamma to be the symbol. And... Uh, during the time of the Buddha and soon after his passing, there weren't these Buddha images. But as time passed by, um, then. So initially, um, they took the study of the Dhamma to uh, replace the Buddha. But after time passed by, then it became increasingly difficult for people to recollect the Buddha in that way, and to recollect the Dhamma in that way. And so people started to create um, these images of the Buddha. And they vary dependent upon place. Uh, So in Thailand, there'll be Buddha images that look Thai. And in India, they'll look Indian. Uh, The Burmese images will look Burmese. The Chinese will look Chinese. The Japanese will appear to be Japanese. And they differ in this way. But the meaning of all of them is the same. The meaning is the Buddha. And they're an object that we use to recollect his great, beautiful virtues, his purity, his wisdom, his compassion. And they help us to recollect these qualities, make it easier. And then we come to practice and we come to study the Dhamma. And this goes deeper and deeper into our hearts. And when we see this, when we see the Dhamma, when we see that things are anicca, things are unstable, always changing, and we see that oh, that the Buddha is this way, and we know how the Buddha is, we know how he taught, and uh, we see clearly that the Buddha taught through the direct knowledge that he had gained himself. And great joy and happiness arises, the mind becomes contented and full, So therefore, when we set our hearts on practicing, like we are, we come to the monastery for maybe one or two days, then we should really make the best of this opportunity. And some people are here for seven days, and some people are here for 15 days. And uh, this is really a good chance to practice. uh, To bring our minds to peace, to meditate a lot, to develop uh, samadhi, and to really throw ourselves into this practice, to make it continuous, And when we do this, then we'll see the results of our efforts. If you're here for just two days, then really try and uh, use that time as best you can. And then when you go back and you start your work again, then be training your mind while you work. Have mindfulness there. Know what the mind is doing, what's arising within it. Is there greed there? Is there hatred there? Is there delusion there? And living in a household with family, it's... An opportunity for us to train our minds well, because these emotions come up, is the anger that's arising, and then we can train our minds um, with that anger. So we train our hearts constantly in this way until we can see the nature of conventions. And at this point, then our faith becomes more firmly established in the teachings of the Buddha, in this Buddha sasana. It becomes firm in this way. And our faith, it doesn't deteriorate, it doesn't decrease. And we call this achala sata, this faith, uh, which which is firmly established, which is unshakable. And so we have uh, faith in this way. We try and make it really stable, we make it firm. And when our faith is, sorry, initially, uh, the faith won't be this strong because we haven't yet seen right into the heart and the essence of the teachings of the Buddha. And so it'll be, or well, we need to depend more upon external things. That we listen to the Dhamma, we depend more upon external things. And then we come to kind of recollect the Buddha and develop more faith in him. We recollect his great qualities and this, we do this in order uh, to develop our faith. And we also do it because we have a certain degree of faith already. And so we have this faith and this belief. And this is a good thing. And we should then come to practice. Practice to bring our minds to peace. And then we'll gain knowledge into the Dhamma here, uh, when we have practiced And from that knowledge of the Dhamma, then our faith will grow and become firmer in stages. When we see the Dhamma and really see it clearly, uh, then our faith becomes unshakable. And it doesn't matter what other people say. If people say that the Buddha, the Dhamma, the Sangha, they're not real, they don't exist, we won't believe them, we won't be shaken by those words. Because we know and we see for ourselves We've seen the results of this practice arise for ourselves within our own hearts and we know that those results are real. We know for ourselves that when we go into samadhi that it has joy like this, that there's this kind of happiness that arises. And so we won't believe what other people say. We see that the body really is Stressful, it really is unstable, it really is not self. It is just a collection of these four elements. And this knowledge is there and it's firm and it's unshakable. In the beginning, we need to just carry on practicing like I've been describing. We need to try to put down all our worries and concerns. And it's normal that we'll have these things when we start to meditate that we'll be concerned about things, we'll be anxious about things, but we should try to just leave these aside for now and bring the mind into peace. And then when it gathers together, uh, then we study so the wisdom can arise. So these are the foundations of the practice, and we should carry on doing them, carry on practicing in this way, and so that we gain knowledge, we gain insight, and that... This knowledge and insight appears within our own hearts. So may all of you grow in blessings.